Listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host DJ Rome on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. The dark brown shades of my skin only add color to my tears. Oh, oh that splash against my hollow bones. That rocks my soul Looking back over my false dreams That I once knew Wondering why my dreams never came true Is it because I'm black? Uh Somebody tell me What can I do? Oh, Lord. Oh, something is holding me back. Uh Is it because I'm black? Yeah. In this well of no pity, I was raised in the ghettos of the city. Yeah. Mama, she worked so hard to earn every penny. Yeah, oh Lord, something is holding me back. Uh-huh. Is it because I'm black? Okay, we are back. KCWG, thetruth.com. The name of this program is Psychotic Bump School. My name is DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, what you're about to experience is a very, very unique roster of talented people. I wanted to have a conversation with non-Black allies. On this program, we have focused extensively on the experiences within the African-American community and all of those things that are impacting and pressing upon it. And so while those perspectives matter deeply to me for obvious reasons, I also wanted to hear from the allies who support this cause. Um, I reached out along with some very dear friends that you're about to hear from in just a second to try to assemble a wide assortment of uh, wonderful people, beautiful people. These are people that I care about and deeply love and a couple of them I'm meeting for the first time and I'm sure uh, allyship will stem from this point forward. Before I introduce most of them, I am going to be co-hosted with this segment by someone who's been here a few times before now. She uh, is originally out of California, Oaktown, Oakland, the Yay area, but she currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. She's a clinical psychotherapist in Atlanta, 
and you can't take you can take the woman out of Callie, but you can't take Callie out of the woman. She's Very back to host true. this conversation with me. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my co-hostess for this segment. Welcome her back to Psychotic Bump School, Dr. Dina Scott. Dr. Scott, Thank are you there? You. Yes, I am. Thank you so much, Rome. So just grateful to be here sharing space with you and the panelists today. Oh, thank you so much. When you think about this conversation we're about to have and um, a couple of people you've invited yourself, um, I'm really concerned about where we're going in this nation. Um, really quickly, um, going into this conversation, what are your thoughts about what we're about to do right here? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we we talked about, I think in the, the last time I was with you, um, with um, my co-founder of and now Connie Chu, um, is just the importance of us having dialogue and cross-dialogue when it comes to um, justice, race, racial healing. Um, there's been so much that has been going on and continues to go on um, in our country. And it's just important for us to be able to, to sit down and to talk. And I think one of the things that has been challenged is that at times when there's things that feel uncomfortable, we tend to avoid those conversations. Um, so I'm just encouraged by the opportunity to come together and to be able to have that dialogue. Absolutely. You brought a guest with you. Um, would you actually do me the honors in uh, introducing uh, Dr. Kim to the audience? Oh, definitely. So when we um, had our initial um, conversation in Rome, I immediately thought of Dr. Anastasia Kim, who was one of my former professors and also is an author and writer and really digs deep when it comes into having um, dialogues and discussions um, such as this and beyond. Um, so I would love to um, introduce um, Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim, are you there? Yes, thank you so much, Dina. You're welcome, you're welcome. Oh, so glad to have you. Absolutely, thank you, Dr. Kim. Really an honor to have you here. Um, you. I also wanna turn Dr. Scott over to Emily Wessel. Emily Wessel is a mental health clinician in Southern California. She's from all parts all over the country and she's brought someone with her as well. But first, can we please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our dear sister, Emily Wessel. Miss Wessel, are you there? Yeah, hi, Rome, I'm here. Thanks for having me back. Oh, you always a joy. Emily, of course, is uh, resided from all parts all over the country. She's not only a mental health enthusiast and specialist, she's also a funk music specialist. So I always love having Emily here. You brought a very special guest with you. So could you please introduce your very special guest? Yeah, I'm really excited to introduce Oriana Murphy. She's a colleague of mine, my clinical supervisor. We work together in uh, the treatment industry in Los Angeles, um, helping people with addiction and mental health at the outpatient level through an amazing organization called Nexus Recovery Services. And I just feel so grateful to work with her on a day-to-day -day basis. And because she has a little bit of a music background as well, I'm excited to um, join her with us here at this crew. And um, yeah, I'm just grateful that she said yes and she's here with us. Yes. Hey, Oriana Murphy, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Thanks Absolutely. We'll try not to put you on the spot to sing or play for us. Okay? <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Emily, for bringing Oriana here. And we have some other guests, ladies and gentlemen. So we actually have uh, six or seven people that I'm going to introduce the rest of the way. Um, first, out of Southern California, uh, this incredible woman has been here uh, a couple of times before. Uh, she calls herself a mojo recovery specialist and uh, she's a dear friend 
she's definitely a fan of the underground soul movement and um, she is definitely an ally. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our dear friend, Deborah Rachel Kagan. Miss Kagan, are you there? I am here. I'm grateful and honored to be with you. Thank you. Deborah, it is such a joy to hear your voice. Also from parts all over the world. Oh my God. Um, there's no telling where this woman will end up when she's called to this show. From each corner of the world, she has been an ally and has chimed in. Uh, she calls herself a polyglot. I got to say that correctly. A polyglot is someone who speaks multiple English, uh, multiple languages, that is. Um, she's from all parts and currently stationed in North Carolina. So also, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, Miss Nicole Haining. Miss Haining, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. And we also have uh, some gentlemen on the line, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this dear friend is from Northern California, not too far actually from the, uh, the Bay, uh, where Dr. Kim is from. Uh, this guy has been on uh, a couple times before. He's an amazingly talented graphic artist. He cares about these issues. He's definitely an ally. So also welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our dear friend, Mr. Steven Schmidt. Mr. Schmidt, are you there? Yes, Rome. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all, and thank you for hosting this discussion. Yes, an honor, my friend, an honor to have you here. And rounding out our roster of the fellas, this guy, y'all know this guy. Wait till you hear this voice. Uh, this gentleman has been here multiple times. He's an author of a best-selling, best-seller, uh, Amazing Grace and Move On Up, a story about the Chicago music scene. Uh, he hails out of Illinois, so uh, it is always an honor to hear his voice, and I definitely consider him to be an ally and a powerful voice in this discussion. So, ladies and gentlemen, also welcome back our dear friend, Mr. Aaron Cohen. Mr. Cohen, are you there? Yes, I am, and thank you very, very much for having me here. It's quite an honor to be on this program. Oh, love having you here, Mr. Cohen. Thank you so much. Well, Dina, um, I think we ought to jump right in. Um, I am very curious to know how our panelists are doing. This has been a tough time on us, right, Dr. Scott? It has. And, um, it has it, taken a toll on mental health workers and, you know, being the ones that are supposed to be providing space, we've had to take care of ourselves. But um, I want to reach out and take care of our allies a little bit and, and allow this, them a little bit of space and grace. So um, I wanted to ask y'all, since you're here, the developments of 2020 have been really intense, uh, ranging from COVID to sheltering in place to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Jacob Blake, uh, on and on and on. And now we just lost the great Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, how have all of these developments impacted your outlook on the state of our country right now? Let's deliver that one first to uh, Dr. Kim, and then I'd like to hear from Deborah Rachel Kagan. Dr. Kim, what are your thoughts? Thanks, Rome. Um, without a doubt, 2020 has been something. And um, we are, it's still unfolding. For me, what's been unveiling against this backdrop is how sobering this year has been and continues to be. In the midst of so much pain and uncertainty, we are face to face. Um, and, and what we are face to face is, I, I believe, reality as it is the threat to global safety, especially for those who are most vulnerable in our communities, the precarious state of our politics and growing polarization, the public murder and lynching of black bodies. But we're also seeing people, especially younger generations on the streets, on social media, online platforms, audaciously rising up, 
speaking up and uh, boldly challenging the system. So that gives me hope. So I toggle back and forth from pain and uncertainty and hope. So my look is that as at my outlook is that as the curtain is lifting more and more and um, we must together, I believe, dare to see the truth, um, because I believe that's what's being unveiled. And we must look with our eyes wide open and with unwavering conviction and courage that we can and must rise together. So yeah. I think in that spirit, I appreciate you bringing us together to have this conversation. Oh, great way to start us off. Thank you, Dr. Kim. Deborah Rachel Kagan. Yeah, I echo so much of what Dr. Kim just said. And, you know, personally, of course, it's, it's been incredibly challenging. Um, and when I think about that, I always think about wherever you are, there you are. And so what I mean by that is when we look at the collective, right, it, is, it affects, of course, us. Uh, what we're, what's going on for us individually um, affects the collective, and the collective also affects us individually. So it's a symbiotic process that's happening. And so the devastation that has been happening in our, in our country is, is, I think it's a huge spiritual awakening for so many people. Um, those people who have been in, you know, the, on the path of a um, an awakened consciousness, uh, it has, you know, it has only, I think, uh, deepened their own uh, seeking, which I'm speaking for myself there. But what I've noticed is for people who have, have maybe not done um, any personal development, and that's the, the realm that, that I work in, that's the waters that I swim in, um, it has proven to be incredibly intense because there is so much pain, there is so much confusion, which has turned into overwhelm, which has turned into you know, unbelievable stress and being separated from each other because of um, you know, the, the pandemic. It has force people to begin to look at themselves, which can be an incredibly challenging conversation, right? One with self and then one collectively. Um, and I do believe that this is a great breakdown, which will cause a breakthrough. Because also wherever there are great breakdowns, it indicates a breakthrough is possible. Mm. And it has, um, you know, this whole... Um, this whole year has definitely been an opportunity uh, for myself to deepen all of the things that I've believed in, my own faith, and certainly the things that I've been teaching for a couple decades. And, you know, it's like put the, <laughs> put the, the, the uh, pedal to the metal because um, it is, we don't have any more time to waste. Oh, and, yeah. and it's very much about um, connecting and remembering to be kind to each other. Yes, absolutely. And I'm wondering about the extent to which we're able to uh, bestow that uh, grace upon ourselves uh, during a time like this. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, Stephen and Aaron and Nicole, I'm coming to you in just a second. Emily and Oriana, uh, I'm coming to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, what you've heard so far? What impact has uh, 2020 had on you? Emily Wessel and then uh, Oriana. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Rome. I, um, I mean, this year has been tough, but honestly, when it comes to issues of race, I don't know that this year has been any tougher than any other year for the people of color in my life. Um, mm. you know, I think mm. this has been going on for a long time. Um, I have a lot of hope in 2020 because I think that now more people are talking about some of these really difficult issues um, and experiencing them and not being able to get away from them. 
um, in 2020 with so many things shutting down, especially sports and a lot of the other things that we can do to distract ourselves from what's happening to people in our country and in the world, we have had the opportunity to really have no choice but to see what's really going on. Um, and I think that this is a really important year because there could be change that hasn't been sustainable in the past because of all the things that have happened this year. Absolutely. And that is the one constant has changed, but you're absolutely right. Thank you, Emily. Ariana Murphy. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I obviously, you know, echo a lot of what's been said. I, I think that um, the idea that Emily brought up around the distractions, I think that there's so much emphasis um, as a society. There, there are so many distractions out there. And of course, one of those has, has been social media for so many. Um, and fortunately, in, in uh, what is what is alive and present in social media right now is what is happening in the world and and um, while there is a lot of distracting uh, social media content um, a, lot, a lot of what we also get to see on social media is um, uh, a lot of really great information uh, around like what you can sort of wake up to right now so mm -hmm. um, you know, with the public lynching of, of George Floyd, there's was so much, you know, uh, nice. books and information and film and, you know, and it is blasted everywhere, which was, mm -hmm. I think, so informative for people um, of all ages. And so social media, which was once such a distraction, became such a great tool, mm -hmm. uh, which I think was so great. Um, but I think, Yes, 2020, um, you know, I go back and forth depending on really the day, right, and the minute in terms of, right. of how I feel about this year, you know, it's, it's with, um, with, with COVID, it's been the great pause on some levels, right, and really forced me to, to look at my own life and my family's life, um, and then sort of turned into, um, you know, what, what do we really want to do with, um, with what we're, we're handed, right? And, yeah. and how can we, in terms of like, when I think of allyship, you know, how can I better serve, you know, my brothers and sisters and my cousins and, you know, um, what am I not doing enough of? And I think that's really what it's turned into because I think um, if I'm not doing that, then what am I really doing? And I think that's really, um, I think that's really what it's about now. And I think fortunately yeah. with that great pause, we're, we're all forced to really look at that without all those distractions, so. Yes, absolutely. It's a time of great reflection. You're mm -hmm. absolutely right. Thank you, Ariana. Aaron and Stephen, I'm coming to you, to you in just a second. Uh, Nicole Haining, what are your thoughts? How has 2020 impacted you? Uh, well, I, I mean, I would echo so many of the things that everybody's just said. I, I think in some ways it's been a real mixed bag for, and for some, for me, in some ways it's been quite positive. Um, not the things that are going on, but I do think it, and maybe there's a reason for that. It's, it's given, uh, given people, I, I just kept thinking, especially with George Floyd, like why this one mm -hmm. out of so many and why mm -hmm. now? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that, that, as challenging and awful as COVID has been for so many people, maybe it allowed the stillness for people to really sink in, right. you know, and get angry. And I do think people are angry in general in the, in the U S you know, so, but it's, you know, people are taking action and 
I, I agree that I think I'm, my optimistic part is, is really hoping that this is um, a, a movement toward positive change, a discussion that's needed to happen for a really long time. And I, I've always told people and students coming to the U.S. that I don't think you can understand uh, the United States culture without understanding the role that race plays in it. Um, mm. And I've been privileged, I think, for someone of my background to see sides that that somebody like me normally wouldn't. So right. um, I'm hoping that, you know, but it's messy. Change is messy and it's hard and uh, it can be really ugly, but I'm, I'm hoping optimistically that it's a shift to, uh, to positive change. And, and I also think just for, not to get all spiritual, but I think Mother Earth needed a break. Uh, I think for some people, uh, too, it's been a time to reconnect with family and with nature and appreciate getting out and going for a walk, which we've gotten away from. So some of those little things, mm. you know. How about that? Absolutely. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Uh, I'm co-hosted on this segment with the amazing Dr. Dina Scott. Uh, you just heard from Nicole Haining and other uh, allies who are on this call. We're talking to non-Black allies, ladies and gentlemen. So before I hand it back over to Dr. Dina Scott, uh, let's turn to the fellas. Stephen Schmidt, Aaron Cohen, what has 2020 uh, been like for the two of you? Uh, let's start first with Stephen Schmidt. Personally, the thing that's, I mean, uh, there's just so much to be concerned about. The, uh, what I've been uh, personally worried about the most of, of late is the rise of authoritarianism in this country. And, you know, mm -hmm. democracies can slip away mm -hmm. under, under our noses, you know, mm -hmm. without um, being diligent about, um, um, you, you know, focusing on, on what's happening. It's um, and what's happening with the, like the Trump administration and just mm. taking over, you know, the Justice Department is, is like a, a totally politicized at this point. Uh, every, every department has been essentially uh, reworked to support Trump's agenda you know, in a kind of mob boss situation that's just disgusting to watch and then that affects you know the ability for us to get anything done as a as a nation is affected by that of course mm -hmm. and, uh, the way he's handled covid and just the disgusting despicable lack of not it's not lack of leadership I and mean, it's just it's just lying from the very beginning and uh, i knew this most of i think everybody on this call knew this but some people in the nation you know trusted him and believed in what he was saying, it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, it's, um, you know, so I'm not real positive on all that. And I see that um, he, he could get reelected through cheating. That's, that's the, um, the method that he and the Republicans are using, you know, voter disenfranchisement. Yeah. Um, and it could work. <laughs> it, it really, it could work. He's going to have a sixth Supreme Court conservative on the court. Uh, I believe, and uh, you know, if, if he's if he gets close enough in some key swing states, a lawsuit challenge will go to the Supreme Court like it did in two thousand, mm -hmm. Bush versus Gore, and he'll have the votes in the Supreme Court to uh, to get victory. You know, it could happen. I've seen this movie before. Mm -hmm. We were all there in two thousand. We watched it play out, um, and uh, so I'm very concerned about about yeah. the state of the country right now. 
I can tell. I can tell. So yeah. uh, I, I definitely wanted to ask you about uh, this current administration. And um, I hear the concern in your voice, Stephen. I know it's authentic. Yeah. And before I let you all go, I'm hoping that we can um, um, put some meat on those bones that you just uh, introduced to us so that we can um, um, carry additional optimism going into this election. So thank you, Stephen, for sharing those critical insights. Uh, we're going to take a break in just a second. But first, I'd like to turn to Aaron Cohen. Mr. Cohen, what are your thoughts? Well, thank you very much for having me here. And I mean, I could not agree more with everybody who's spoken. So you know, everybody said so much that I completely agree with. I'd just like to add uh, that the year 2020 and the pandemic and all of the lives that we've lost, the 200,000 who have died, the millions who are ill, I, you know, it's just devastating to me. But one of the things that the pandemic has shown me in stark relief and is that we do not have much time here on this planet and the time is now to work for change the time is now for urgency and one of the things that gives me hope about the current movement of young people especially the black lives movement is the urgency to make changes now the urgency to fight against the historical iniquities the historical brutalities that have been uh, foisted on these communities and that the time is now to work towards change. I'm just hoping, 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 hoping that the energy that the young people in Chicago and where I live is and nationwide will um, translate into making the changes happen sooner rather than later. You know, I agree with everything about the uh, awfulness of the current, uh, I don't want to call it an administration, I think it's probably more suitable to call it a regime, but mm. I think what scares me more than the tyranny and fascism is the environmental destruction that, of course, you're seeing out there on the West Coast. Oh, yes. And what I just said earlier about how we don't have much time in our lives, I don't know how much time this planet has if we don't take care of this environmental devastation that's happening now. But, you know, as far as my job is, I'm trying to listen to as many people as possible and, you know, uh, trying to follow the lead of the great, often young leaders who are out there um, and supporting them as much as I can. Absolutely. Well, you've done an amazing job, uh, all of you. Thank you for that opening salvo. Uh, we're going to return with Dr. Dean Scott in just a second, but tell you what, let's take a short break. We're going to continue our discussion with this amazing panel here. Uh, we're talking to non-Black allies on this show. Uh, this is uh, Psychotic Bumpsky on KCWG, thetruth.com. I'm co-hosting with my uh, wonderful co-host down in Atlanta, Georgia, Dr. Dina Scott, and she's going to take over uh, after we get back from this break. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be right back after this. Okay. Can't breathe, can't think, been doing up. My friends on the street stop so abrupt. What's wrong? They demand, tell us what's up. No need one look, and they all shut up. See, it's written all over anyone can see. No matter how much daily attitude seems. And I'm tired of missing what I've been replaced. So tired of the world knowing your mistakes. And the tears keep rolling down my face.
Hello, people. This is Rocky Dawuni, and you are listening to the Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Peace of mind. That's just what I seek to find. Oh, yes. I ain't in the mood. I just need some solitude, oh gosh But everybody's trying to talk to me yet nobody wanna hear me out Everybody's got some things to say, honestly, them just don't move them out They say it makes no sense, I'm not a time to figure it out Leave me alone, oh gosh See, what I'm trying to say is that this caused me so much pain Feeling like I ain't got no control over my brain And it's sad to see that you don't see it's driving me insane Leave me alone, oh guys Yo, right I know, no for them forget, block and delete Airplane mode out that life, you're so sweet Come and ring off me line seven days of the week me no fee right now, me no fee sleep Leela beg you this, Leela beg you that Hey, shut your shit, hey Cut the crap, 2020 now Certain things for stop So we disappear to the habitat, yes Everybody's trying to talk to me Yet nobody wanna hear me out Everybody's got some things to say Honestly, them just a move them out, yes They say it makes no sense I'm not a time for figure it out Leave me alone Yo, everybody's trying to talk to me And I don't know just what's the pre Certain things them hear and things them see Can we dip on them radio and TV One bag of talking, talking, no one of those days what make you ever want to compass when you don't say I'm gonna get paid? Sometimes I don't understand why you can't give me some space. So now I feel used. So now I don't know. WG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and we're talking tonight and continuing our discussion uh, with some amazing allies uh, to this cause 
of uh, Black Lives and uh, just getting their take on um, allyship in the state of 2020. It, it's been heavy, as you've been hearing. Uh, my co-hostess for this segment is Dr. Dina Scott, clinical psychotherapist out of Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Scott, please take it away. Sure. So it has just been very encouraging just to hear um, all of the voices on, on this call today. Um, yes. As we just think about just the journey of 2020, uh, clearly there are just so many complexities there, so many things that are kind of sitting on the heart spirits on us all. And when thinking about that, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is really trying to figure out how to dispel or to unpack some of the potential myths and misconceptions out there. So one of the things I want to pose to the panelists is when thinking about 2020, what myth or misconception about white or non-Black allies have emerged this year that you would like to speak about and correct um, the record on? Um, so I'm going to start um, with calling on um, Dr. Kim. Dr. Kim, yes. Thanks, Dina. Um, this is an important question. And it would, um, I mean, when I teach graduate classes, it, we try to talk about issues like this across 13 weeks, you know, three right. hours each week. Um, but here's my short take on it because it's a very important and loaded question. I think at the start of the COVID pandemic, there was a dangerous rhetoric about the current pandemic being a Chinese virus, which mm. then in turn ignited open aggression and discrimination against Asian communities worldwide. And especially yes. in the states where if you, if where we were, if you will, given state sanctioned permission to openly and boldly perpetrate discrimination against AAPI. Right. And um, as such, people were becoming more aware of racism against AAPI, against this backdrop of COVID. But when the George Floyd murder, uh, when George Floyd was murdered and many had the attitude that the discrimination against Asians were no longer relevant, you know, I think that this highlighted a really important racial tension that we've had historically in the States. To be clear, I, um, being called racial epithets or even being beaten up cannot be compared to murder. I want to make that crystal clear. But what was highlighted again for me um, is how historically and politically communities of color have been pitted against each other and have been used against each other to perpetrate and embolden racism um, in this country. And there's a long and often overlooked history of how the myth of Asians and I include myself in that um, community as the racial minority. And of course, we know historically that this is a term that was coined by the American sociologist William Peterson at the peak of the civil rights movement and was a means to suppress black voices and political resistance. And of course, we know this is the type of pattern that has continued. So to address your question about myth, the truth that has been unveiled again and again for me, and this time is no different, is that the Black Lives Movement that we are currently in the throes of, just as the Civil Rights Movement was many decades ago, is about the possibility of our collective salvation, such that Asians, Blacks, Latinx, Indigenous, and white human dignity are all inextricably bound together. And this is what I was reminded again um, in the past six months and the truth that we must together hold, that we are fighting for Black Lives Matter 
so that all lives will truly matter. And so, you know, allyship cannot be this performative um, endeavor that a lot of individuals, companies, organizations, and corporations have done in the way of putting out a statement about their support for BLM. It can't be a sympathy definition. White folks are involved and they are complicit and they are active. And so, you know, I think, you know, the, the myth of picking one side or another who suffers most or the oppression Olympics is something that we have to aggressively look, examine, interrogate, and then dispel. That's right. Thank you so much, Dr. Kim. I mean, what you said there was unpacking so many different, um, or starting to unpack so many different layers. And to your point, this is something that could be discussed over the course of, you know, a semester, a year, and many years. And I think when you think about, you know, just some of those myths or some of the, you know, concepts we have connected to allyship, um, it is important to figure out how do we go beyond um, allyship and also how do we look at some of the myths that are told about certain groups to pull us apart versus connect us. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And again, so much to start unpacking there. I would also love to hear, Emily, um, a little bit from you in terms of what are some of the, the myths and misconceptions that have come up and come your way in 2020? Thanks, Dina. Yeah, I, um, you know, when I, when I think about 2020, I think about a lot of people becoming aware of the different types of racism that exist in our culture, whether it be individual, internalized, systemic, and I'm not an expert on any of these things, but I did get my undergraduate degree from American University in Economics. And that was shortly after I had my first real confrontation with my privilege, which was through a legal situation in the courts. And I started to really see how people were treated differently, depending on who they were, what they looked like, what their background was, but most importantly, what their, what their race was, what they, what they physically looked like in court. And, um, and just in terms of the resources and the things that were provided for people, it just looked so different for people, for men, for women, for people of color in particular. So I went into my bachelor's degree to look at the economics of race. And that's what I focused my study on. And I was lucky to go to a, <clears throat> a liberal university that had a lot of material on this subject and a lot of professors that were willing to have these tougher conversations and, and empower us as students to be able to learn how to have these tough conversations, which is where I think it starts. And for me, I focused a lot on systemic racism because I felt like capitalism was something that I understood and that gave me a grounds to take the emotional blame out for just enough time for me to really understand the depth um, of what was happening. And then I could come back to the emotions that were being experienced on a more individual level. But for me, that was, that was the beginning of the journey for me, um, was to be able to compartmentalize it enough so that I, that I could understand it in a way that I could then really deal with the grief that I was feeling and the grief that I was seeing in my friends and family members that were people of color. And, and that really, um, that was a really important time in my life. And I think for, for 2020, what I'm experiencing is a lot of people talking about systemic racism, the prison industrial complex, right. reading, studying. This is, this is like the first time since I was in school, and this was what everybody was doing in the class, that I've had conversations with people in my life that knew I was interested in this for 15 years and that I was working in this for 15 years. So, I, so for me, it's like 
coming full circle. And I'm so grateful that people are having these conversations. So I think as a white woman, it's important for me to be able to have tough conversations so that people of color don't have to, because mm. it's not fair, <laughs> right? Like we need to be stepping up and holding that space too. Mm. Well, and it's so interesting, you know, when I was hearing you speak, it made me think a lot about just the power of doing our own work when it comes to identity and identity development. And so looking at the system and the system that's beyond us, but also starting with unpacking some of our own and the importance of being able to start there to then look at that greater system and some of the, the challenges that lie within. And, and to your point, you know, you had that, that privilege and the opportunity within that class to have these real discussions and dialogues. And now there's that space and place to, to dig in and to have more, more of those conversations and to go beyond. So thank you so much for that, Emily. I also would love to hear um, from Stephen and to hear a little bit in terms of your thoughts when it comes to myths and misconceptions um, that have come up and emerged in 2020. Uh, yes, thank you. This, this was a hard one for me to think of an answer for. Um, you know, I, I, I believe uh, one thing that is, is probably not, uh, not thought that there'd be this much support for uh, racial justice, racial equality, you know, and the um, killing of George Floyd uh, brought out um, a wide uh, array of the, of the public in, in support of, you know, justice and racial, uh, racial justice, and that, that's heartening to see. And uh, so I think, um, you know, maybe the, the myth that there, there wouldn't be non-Black support for, uh, at this level was certainly that myth was shattered. Um, and so it's so good to see that that um, it just needs to be built and we need to build on that, of course, and, and have have these conversations. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in exploring what what that means, um, you know, especially uh, non-black allies, you know, um, you know, conversing like what, you know, what I've heard from certain um, people uh, and even celebrities. I was listening to a, an interview, um, Mark Maron on his, you know, WTF podcast was interviewing Janelle Monet, one of my favorite artists, by the way. And uh, just so I listened to the whole thing. And at the end, you know, she brought up the, the topic of, you know, it's incumbent on you, you know, speaking to Mark, but he is representing, you know, the white community, I guess, uh, to talk with other white people about this subject. And then, but I was left sort of question mark in my head as to how how that's facilitated and you know how i don't have an answer for it but um um so i that's something i'd like to pose to the whole panel um just you know what what does that mean to to you you know to uh to facilitate these types of conversations and how is that and the end goal is to get more um racial equality more justice for everybody so how you know how how will those conversations get to a point of political action, um, legislative change, you know, things that are needed uh, ultimately, you know, beyond conversations to, to have some concrete um, solutions in place. So, right. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. And I, you know, when I hear you speak and when I hear you, you know, just talk about, you know, the power that comes with, you know, us maybe having that myth that, 
you know, white folks or, you know, non-Black um, people of color, um, Indigenous people of color may not show up and seeing that some folks have, um, super important and super powerful. And then when you were talking about just us being able to engage in these um, dialogues and discussions and, and posing it to um, the panel, it made me think about a book that I actually have on my coffee table that Dr. Kim um, wrote, um, and it's called It's Time to Talk and Listen, which I feel like unpacks, you know, some of those specific things that you're referring to, because in, you know, a world and a climate to where things can be so complex, um, we do need that space and place to have skills and, you know, develop skills when it comes to having, having the conversation and engaging. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. That was the voice of Dr. Dina Scott, clinical psychotherapist out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we're having a panel discussion. Oh my God, it's so robust. Uh, you just heard from uh, Stephen Schmidt out of Northern California. We heard from Dr. Anastasia Kim, also in Northern California. And we also heard from Emily Wessel by way of DC, Ohio, California, Southern California. She's from all over the place. Uh, these are our non-Black allies, y'all. And uh, just continuing along that conversation, uh, I want to turn it over next, uh, Dr. Dina. Thank you so much. I want to turn it next to Oriana, Nicole, Aaron, and I'm skipping someone. I'm going to, I got it here. Uh, no, I got that. And Deborah. So given what uh, Stephen said in the last segment, he was just talking about, he was kind of uh, leading me to this next part of the question. Um, I want the four of you to speak on uh, this one a little bit. I'm just wondering the, the challenges of speaking up and the fact that this current administration and environment that we're in politically has created such strife that members of the, the, the current occupant of the White House, his own family, have uh, spoken out vehemently against his reelection. And uh, part of it is just making me think about how this uh, time we're in has impacted families and friendships and relationships. So to the four of you, I'm wondering how often have you had to challenge racist colleagues, whether they be your friends or family, about their own deeply held ideologies? And if you've had to confront them about their racist comments or behaviors or positions, how difficult has it been for you to have those kind of conversations? Let's go to Oriana on that one and then Deborah. Oof, yeah, this is this is a t this has been a tough part of my journey. Um, I uh, I will say that this has actually been something that I have stepped into more this year than ever before. Um, and it's actually something that I, uh, really committed to because I, I recognize the fact that there was a lot of things that I wasn't willing to address, like within my family, um, based on different political beliefs, let's just say, um, I, in the past have said, well, you know, there's things that we just don't talk about. Um, and I've sort of ignored things and, um, and I recognize how much harm was being caused and that I wasn't really, um, the more work that I've done, right. On like my own anti-racist journey, um, recognize that I wasn't really doing, um, my own work if I wasn't willing to confront whether it's friends, colleagues, but uh, family really. And, um, and so I've been doing that a, a, a little <laughs> with family, but more outside of family and What's been like horrible. <laughs> In what way? I, I believe you. In what way? Um, 
you know, not, not really well received. Um, because a lot of what I have gotten back has been, why does it always have to come down to race? Mm. That's, um, which is actually what I was thinking about was when Dr. Kim was speaking and um, around like the misconceptions, right? The myths, mm. the, um, the ideas around, well, this isn't um, like if, if um, you know, this isn't just about liberation, right? For black lives, right? This is, this is really about liberation for everyone. Right. And, um, and, um, I think that having to confront people that, uh, yeah. that I love and, and I'm, 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 I've, I'm from, <laughs> right? mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been a painful experience. Um, I think in the workplace, things have come up, microaggressions, right? Racial abuse. I mean, that's what it is, right? And, um, you know, hearing things and, and how to address them appropriately in a way that's, um, you know, what's the best way to handle this? And I've had to really um, ask people like, you know, is it, do I go to HR? Do I dress it in the room? Do I, do I, you know, do I ask my boss? Like what, how do I do this? You know? And, um, and, um, that, that's been, that's been really challenging for me, you know, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, I would say that I'm still like fumbling through all that, you know, um, I have no problem like doing that when I don't know the person, no problem (laughs) whatsoever, you know, that's right. Uh, You know, seeing something, you know, and, and I don't know the person or witnessing that I can do that all day long, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but that I think for me, like, it, it's sort of, you know, it's like, I can talk about it. I can, but am I going to really be about it? And mm-hmm. I have to kind of put it like <laughs> bluntly. And, um, and so that's sort of where I'm like fumbling along. You know, I, I see things. It's like, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was last night, I was on like a next door, that app sort of spiral at like midnight, you know? And um, I mean, the, the flagrant racial abuse on there is, is, I mean, it's horrific. What I don't know if anyone goes on that app, and you know, I have no problem on there just calling it out, right, left and right. And um, but those aren't my friends and family, you know. Exactly. Um, I mean, it, it just totally raises the stakes when it's somebody that you actually love and care about, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, that, that mm-hmm, just changes the entire mm-hmm, dynamic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a break in a few minutes. I want to hear from Deborah Rachel Kagan on that. Um, Ariana shared a lot right there, uh, Deborah. Um, can you pick up right there? What are your thoughts on that? Have you had to confront people with their own uh, racist behavior? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, one member of my family, for sure, we've been going through it since the last election. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it's it's very challenging, and you know it's interesting though because I, I I come back to when we this particular part of the conversation, and this is really what um, I have been called to hold space for in terms of the women that I work with and the women that I serve, and I do have you know women across all races, and um, you know this this real pain and and heartache and 
anger that that comes up when how do you deal with this in the workplace and how do you deal with this with your friends and your family and you know we're all i think fumbling through it but what i'm so present to um right now and i keep coming back to one of my spiritual teachers which um who passed at the end of last year uh, a man named Ram Das, and you know his teacher told him, and he has then you know passed on to his students, which is this: love everybody and tell the truth. And I come back to that all the time because while it's very you know it is so challenging to see any good right in someone who is being cruel and harmful and uh, really threatening other people's lives, but I think. For me, what what for is a saving grace is that I know within every single human there is a soul, there is that spirit, and there is goodness. And so, whether you know their actions and their behaviors are not matching what is deeply inside them as a human, for me to remember that, to support people in remembering that, allows for less um, divisiveness within you know, the individual that's questioning, the individual that is saying, okay, I, I do want to be part of a solution. Mm-hmm. But we have to, I think we have to come to that within ourselves to be able to, to shift the conversation so it, 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 it is not so intensely polarized. Mm-hmm. And I say that, and right on the heels of that is, one of the universal laws is the law of polarity. There's no up without down. There's no left without right. There's no front without back. But where then do we find ourselves in in somewhat more of the middle ground instead of so deeply polarized? And that's the space and the conversation that I've been, you know, most interested in and and have been doing my best to hold space for. And I think... And I hear you about that Nextdoor app because I am on it and I check it just to be aware of what's going on in the neighborhood and, mm. and in the community. Um, but I think even when we're challenging, you know, those horrible, horribly racist things that, you know, it's like keyboard jockeys, we call them, whether it's on Nextdoor or Facebook or, tw- I mean, Twitter, my goodness, you know. Mm. And... Um, what how are we responding to that right how can we add to that conversation to challenge that person's beliefs and say hey by the way have you thought of it this other way instead of coming back at it with the same anger because that just is exacerbates the problem uh, i've been flipping through my timeline trying to get my mind right my city cried out i got to cool down but i'm under pressure with my Crisco, look at what my fist go, a renegade when I'm in a rage, I got to cool down, but I'm under pressure, I keep my hands dirty, my mind clean, got a new agenda, with a new dream, I'm kicking out the old regime, liberation, elevation, education, America, you a lie, but the whole world, about to testify, I said the whole world, about to testify, in the tables about to
of that ugly night in Kenosha when Joseph Jojo Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, two demonstrators, were shot to death at close range by a 17-year-old toting an AR-15 rifle, Kyle Rittenhouse. The first deadly shooting occurred here at the car source. Kyle Rittenhouse's lawyer says he was retreating from an angry mob who were, quote, relentlessly hunting him down as prey. And the 17-year-old had no choice but to turn in this spot and fire in self-defense. He is, a, in a sense, a hero because, you know, he stood okay. up for the community. I think it was pretty stupid. What he did was wrong. He should have just left it be, let the Kenosha police and everybody else down there handle it. This one's going to be for Nicole and Aaron. Uh, Aaron, you actually are going to get this one first before I go to Nicole, because uh, Deborah was talking about polar polarity, okay? Left without right. I mean, sort of um, balance and one sort of being inextricably linked to one another, but yet two sides are so opposite that you, you can't hardly get anything done. Um, when I think about what she's talking about, Aaron, um, I just thinking about the two systems of justice that exist in the, the country right now. I was thinking about the Jacob Blake shooting. I was thinking about the fact that in Kenosha, Wisconsin, just as an example, how an unarmed black man can, can get shot on camera seven times in the back uh, without having a weapon. And um, during that same frame, you know, you want to talk about polarity in the same frame on a meme on the internet, you see this 17 year old white male, uh, Al Rittenhouse is not even a part of that area marching freely among the uh, sort of the, what's supposed to be the peacekeepers, white male, he's allowed to roam freely uh, while being strapped. And while he was strapped, he actually shot three people, two of them he, uh, he killed, they were fatal shots. And so when I think about that polarity that uh, Deborah was talking about, I'm just wondering, uh, what's it like for you? And uh, Nicole, I'm coming to you in just a second. When, when you witness racial injustice like that uh, in real time, because I, I was just reminded about LeBron James when Lori Laughlin, the actress who was caught up in that college admission scandal, she got to actually pick and choose where she's gonna serve her time, okay? Now, who else is afforded that type of privilege? So, Aaron, how often do you speak up when you, when you witness racial injustice like that, in, whether it's in the news cycle or in real time, you're seeing it face-to-face -face for yourself. Um, what's that been like for you? 
Well, I mean, as I mentioned it earlier uh, to you off before we went on, um, when I was growing up in Evanston, Illinois, um, when I was a kid, uh, I knew Jacob Blake's father, Jacob Blake. I knew Justin Blake, his uncle. You know, I lost touch with them as I grew up. Um, a very good friend of mine, Mark Garino, who is a Chicago reporter for the Washington Post, was been has been covering Kenosha. He's up in Kenosha for 14-hour days. Uh, he saw uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shoot two of those three people. He, my friend Mark, was two feet away from that shooting, and so it's it's been it's been quite an emotional toll over here, you know. And to answer your question about me speaking up, you know, I I don't engage in Facebook or Twitter conversations with people who I don't know, who I don't respect. Um, I never heard of that WhatsApp, uh, what was it, Nextdoor app, whatever. I never heard of it. I never heard of it until just now. My whole way of engaging with people is to be polite uh, but firm in my uh, way of speaking. And another thing is to not engage with people who I don't know or don't respect because you never get a good conversation going that way. But of course, everything that's been happening these past few months uh, indicate that perhaps I should be more outspoken in these uh, social media forums, even if it's among a group of people who I don't know, just because it's more important to show our numbers, our meaning allies and people who are engaged in the movement. Um, I would not previously want to spend time on those engaging even in a polite but firm way so Mm -hmm. maybe it's time to change that maybe it's time to even if these are what uh, people say trolls or russian bots or you know whatever that maybe it's time for me to speak up more in that arena i I certainly do i have a confession i have a confession okay i'm listening to you and and (laughs) i've recently created myself a, a troll account on twitter i never had my own twitter account before but just what you just said, that's exactly where I'm coming from. And that's exactly why I created the account. It's like, I'm never letting or allowing injustice to stand. Falsehood, fake news claims, I'm pushing back. And because of the fact, like what Oriana was saying a minute ago, how it becomes so personal when you know the person and you have your true identity exposed like that and out there for the world to see, it, it becomes an easy target for somebody to attack, to pick you apart because of your color, your gender. And you know, they, they look at your profile and see who you love or what have you. But sure. my troll account, Aaron Cohen, has provided me a great therapeutic outlet. And I can't even begin to tell you what how good it feels to push back on uh, on the nonsense. You know, well, I'm all for civil discourse. And if they get out of hand, I block them and move on. But you're absolutely right. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's very funny because I mentioned my friend, Mark Carino, who was in Kenosha, who was basically two feet away when Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shot two of the three people oh, who wow. he shot. And he reported on it for the Washington Post. He's been you know, all over. You can definitely look, out, look for his articles. And the comments that he received from people who he didn't know, who nobody knows, saying, claiming that Mark was not there, claiming that Mark lives on the East Coast, um, which, you know, completely false. He lives a few blocks away from me here in Chicago. 
And it was, it was ludicrous. It was totally ludicrous. So I said to Mark, Hey, you know, should we get a bunch of our guys together and respond you right. know, to these comments? And he basically laughed them off, which might be the right response. I don't know. I mean, they were targeted at him, but um, yeah, it, it is time. For, and, you know, but in terms of person to person level, um, you know, I definitely agree uh, specifically with what Deborah and Oriana was saying that um, it's really time to show that it's all about liberation for everyone, that it's time to show that, you know, it's the Black Lives Matter movement is to make our world a better place. And that benefits everyone that, you know, white privilege, it exists and white privilege, white racism, systemic racism exists. Wow, that that's crazy. Uh, I mean, I don't know why I didn't think to to reach out to you, but I had no idea you were connected uh, to the Kenosha incident uh, in that way, in such a personal way. Uh, knowing the father of Jacob Blake and his uncle, that that's crazy. I mean, I haven't seen them in years, but, but uh, you know, I mean, who knew? I mean, yeah, I, I didn't know that when I reached out to you. This is just my dumb luck, I guess. It's sometimes well, it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> and I think that also shows the immediacy of all of this because. Yeah. You know, I heard about, and the name Jacob Blake is not an unusual name. So, um, you know, I saw the clip, the TV of him being shot, and which was shocking, it was horrible. And then to find out that he's the son and nephew of people I grew up with just made it hit home how closely we are all connected to what we see. Well, speaking of that, that that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, man. I, I had no idea when I reached out to you, no idea. So, um, the reason why that's so pivotal, Nicole, and then we're going to take a break after you you, you kind of land with this one, is because uh, Aaron, ladies and gentlemen, just mentioned Evanston, and um, Nicole is in the beautiful state of North Carolina in a very liberal uh, city, uh, and both of those cities, ironically, from Evanston to Asheville, uh, they're both the first in the nation to actually approve reparations. They had uh, state councils or community board members to approve uh, the, the legislative initiative for and toward reparations. Evanston and Asheville are in this interview right now, ladies and gentlemen. So Nicole Haney, you have the unique distinction of landing the plane for this segment. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, the notion of having to challenge racist colleagues, family or friends about how deep their ideologies are. Uh, can you land the plane for us, Nicole Haney? What's been your experience? Um, it's been such a, I feel like this is like a 10 hour, <laughs> a three beer conversation. Um, but, you know, I've been really lucky in the industry that I work in that people are pretty globally minded. So professionally, I'm not, you know, I haven't really run into, with colleagues, run, run into friction. And when I was, before I was teaching, I was doing nonprofit works. So I worked in refugee resettlement and then with SED kids in LA and they've been, you know, really mixed environments. So, and I've been in interracial relationships and have really deep interracial friendships. And so, you know, I've uh, been lucky to be having these conversations for a long time with people that I love and respect. Uh, family is, uh, has been more challenging. My life has been really different than pretty much anybody else in my extended family. Um, uh, my immediate family, you know, when this stuff started coming up, I was very delicately trying to bring up some of the some of the topics, I guess, with my immediate family. Uh, but I did find myself lashing out against someone in, that I knew from Miami uh, on Facebook because I 
couldn't talk. I really, looking back retrospectively, it was because I didn't feel like I could have those conversations with my family. Mm. Um, so even immediate family, it's a little bit difficult. Uh, and it's because there's history there, you know? Mm. Um, so, but with the extended family whose lives are very, very different than mine and are, are very much Trump supporters for the most part, not all, um, it's hard. And I, you know, for me personally, I, I've had the, the blessing and the curse of work, you know, these life experiences where I've had to confront my own, I've just watched myself building and crashing stereotypes about people and communities and how hard it is to, um, sometimes when you're dealing with like their particular cultures that I just don't connect with. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, I did find myself when I was teaching sort of having negative stereotypes and, you know, having to catch myself and, uh, really reminding myself to treat people on an individual level. Um, And it's an exercise like anything. Um, And the other thing being, I've just had so many experiences in the last few years that have been really humbling. I um, was so angry after the last election. I just saw it coming and felt like nobody was listening to me. You know, I've for, as someone who has lived in multiple places that are recovering from authoritarian regimes and working with refugees you know, I could see the writing on the wall. Um, and I was, I was so angry and, you know, posting all this, you know, mostly on social media, posting all this angry stuff and then thinking, well, what about, you know, maybe I needed to look at myself and my way of communicating that people weren't able to hear me. Um, so I've really personally just been trying to hold myself accountable so just as we, you know, think about, you know, wrapping up our conversation and all that you have brought, you know, to the space and place and for our audience, we wanted to just get a bit of your, um, just your words of wisdom when we think about just action steps or things to look at when we're moving forward. So just, this is something I'm going to post to everyone and feel free to jump in um, as you're comfortable. But going forward, um, how do you plan to use your privilege to assist others, and also just thinking about what steps could you suggest or actions, you know, items could you suggest to our audience when thinking about ways to better understand um, our roles within the context of African Americans fighting for equality and justice in this country. So I'm going to toss that over um, to you all and, and whoever would like to jump in. Uh, Dr. Kim, what are your thoughts on that? I think that regardless of whatever one's profession or passion is how to do it diligently, passionately, unapologetically, because um, allyship and our work individually and together um, to help, you know, dismantle something as giant as racism requires that we all work everywhere. So, you know, as my son is creating his own music and producing his, you know, and we're consciously having conversations with him, like, how are you awake, especially as a young man of color? How are you awake to what is going on around you? How do you resist the pull to not get brainwashed? Because um, it requires a 24-7 level of diligence. And um, so whether you are a musician, a writer, an artist, a dancer, a professional politician, or in my case, I teach graduate students and I provide consultations to organizations and corporations, I think we have to understand that this is and cannot be an optional work for any of us. We have to think about this personally. 
Um, me personally, when I do my own work, um, one of the things that I often recommend is that we have to be students of history and history that we consume that's written by black historians and experts and people of color, namely those people who are not represented because we have all inhaled and drank a Kool-Aid that it does not reflect mm. reality. Okay. And um, so as such, we have to be relentless. We can't be passive and complacent and believe that anything and everything that is written and disseminated to us is the truth because it is not. Um, and I think that also requires relentless self-interrogation. It's not just okay to be a good person who stands up for the right thing, but because the disease of racism is so insidious that it has, without a doubt, has you know made a home deep into the recesses and the corners of our psyche. I don't care if you are the best good person on the planet. You cannot mm -hmm. be exempt sort of from that type of um, power. And if you think about it, the entire American experiment was founded on genocide and slavery. So it stands to reason that this phenomenologically is entrenched in, deep into our psyches. And so we have to be so emboldened and so and relentless in dismantling and interrogating the white supremacist indoctrination that we individually have um, inhaled. I think it's easy to sort of say, I can't believe that person said this, or even our own family members, organizations, it really starts with us, you know? Mm. So um, to not get tired of it, I think for me personally, I am constantly working in spite of my um, older age that I wish I had more patience and grace um, in working um, with, in particular, white folks and liberal organizations. I'm, I've, you know, lived most of my life in California, so liberalisms abound here. But it also um, is used as a cloak or a veneer of something much more insidious that people are unable or unwilling to examine. And so none of us are exempt from the disease of racism. And I think that if I could impart anything is, you know, don't look elsewhere, stand in front of that mm -hmm. metaphorical mirror and look within. And I don't care what you have done and what your resume says or doesn't say, there is so much more work that has to get done. Um, and you couldn't finish it. None of us could finish it in our lifetime. And so with some compassion to be able to interrogate ourselves. Absolutely. You know, Could I say, oh, sorry. I, I wanted, I was coming no, in. I just wanted to respond to that because I, um, I hear that so, so deeply. I think one of the things that's come up for me with, you know, when I have these conversations, for example, with students, you know, they'll always say, yeah, we're going to, you know, say, well, how do you deal with, uh, you know, what do you, how are we going to improve these things in the world? And inevitably, They'll say, I'm going to teach my children that, that racism is wrong. But I've never had any of them say, I'm going to look at myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, wow. and I, and I never. Um, never. And I'm like, how do you, te how, how, what, do you <laughs> what do you think you're teaching your kid? You know, they're going to be watching you. Yeah, and I think, from, right? Right, right. right. And I think we're also so unaware of ourselves sometimes. I mean, I've had, there's part of it for me is this, respecting some of these ideas of Buddhism and other things like that, that you are not your thoughts, you know, there's a separation there, but being able to observe the thoughts when they come up. And I've had moments like that where all of a sudden that inculcated racism or prejudice comes up and I think, Whoa, where did, where did that come from? And it can also just be with language. You know, I've noticed that hearing certain accents. Mm -hmm. 
So anyway, I think, yes, it's critical to be vigilant and try to not be defensive. And the things that I've been really working on lately are uh, nonviolent communication. Um, the last couple of years has been a really active ex exercise in listening. Um, mm. And if you don't mind me saying, I wanted to just take a second to unpack this idea of the word privilege, which I think gets everybody's hackles up. Mm. And um, when, you know, after the George Floyd killing, I started reaching out to a lot of my black friends and just trying to hold space and listen and everybody's experience was were so different of mm. course um but one of the conversations that i had that i thought was really good was a friend of mine talking about how do we talk about this word privilege or how he does mm. in a predominantly white industry that he works in and is to um, take some of the sting away from that word and just realize we all have privilege we, uh, you have a privilege if you are attractive, if you have a loving family, there's plenty of people that have money that don't, you know, who are emotionally neglected or whatever, you know, so, um, and maybe being open to the idea that there's just something you haven't, you haven't experienced in asking questions. So as, as viscerally charged as it is for me, when I'm butt up against the other side, I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. Mm, absolutely. I mean, wow. I want to, I mean, I appreciate that, Nicole. And I also think that it's really, really important that I think, you know, when we're talking about racism in particular and in the U.S., that right. there are different types of allyship and different work. So as an Asian woman, I feel like the work of allyship, again, uh, related to BLM is slightly different than mm -hmm. you know, the work of brown folks or the work of white folks. Right. And, um, and as someone who specializes in emotional regulation, I, I think it's fine for people to feel defensive. I think it's natural for people to feel angry or unsure or anxious. Mm -hmm. But what often happens is that because we have all been entrenched in this idea of white supremacist indoctrination that it has to be palatable to what the white mainstream culture is and mm -hmm. historically if we look at um the history of civil rights i mean you know black folks brown folks people of color have you know resisted in all kinds of ways through nonviolent ways to be non-conciliatory to be conciliatory to non be to not be conciliatory to adopt any means necessary i mean it's been a cornucopia of ways to say like hear what is the truth look at and people have not been believed so as i work with my colleagues who do this work in consultation and training and teaching it's like okay we do, sometimes do need separate spaces because the kind of work that maybe different racial groups have to do um, and the burden that people have to carry are not disproportionate or um not sort of equal across the board. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 get, I get spoiled in California and I'm surrounded by people with all kinds of woke vocabulary and experiences and admirable resumes. And I just feel like we have to adopt an attitude where, you know, I'm letting my son go to school and I have to imagine as if I'm a black mother wondering if he might get pulled over by the police and wondering if he might come home. And that level of anxiety that mm -hmm. is persistent is what people's real lives are. And so I think that part of addressing privilege and allyship is, am I willing consciously and deliberately willing to be able to take on that level of anxiety and to share that burden? Um, and I think that that's where we have to do the work instead of, you know, the type of um, stuff that we've been doing thus far. Um, and it's going to 
require, I think, a radical um, and um, emboldened, um, you know, form of resistance at the personal level. Dr. Kim, you, you just raised uh, the issue of parenthood. Does anyone else have children? Um, I do. Yeah. Who does? I do, Oriana. Okay. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, when you have a, a, a Black child, and even if you don't, I mean, just having a child coming up during a time like this, um, what are your thoughts on what you just heard from uh, Dr. Kim? And then I want to hear from Deborah Rachel Kagan. To the parent piece, I have no idea what that's like. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth, right? I have no idea what that's like because I have a white child. Mm. Um, I, I have no idea and I can't, I can't begin to imagine, but I do know that I am trying to as best as I possibly can while learning from others uh, teach my child to not be racist. Mm. So that's you know what i mean and and while also to not be colorblind right mm -hmm. <laughs> like to not be that parent um mm -hmm. and so you know that's how i mean it's but like i i don't know how else to do this you know well you make a good point deborah stand by i'm coming to you next uh i'm just thinking about the talk Mm -hmm. Okay, you're raising a white child. Dr. Kim is raising a, a black child. And what would the talk look like in both of your respective households? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's got to be different. Uh, Dr. Kim, you want to comment real, real quick on that? And um, then I'm going to go to Deborah Kagan. Uh, when you think about having the talk with your black child compared to the talk that mm -hmm. um, Oriana might have, uh, what comes to mind? Well, I, I want to be clear. I don't have, I mean, I have a multiracial child. So my husband is black and, you know, I'm, I'm Korean. Mm -hmm. um, so we have Blasian children, uh, a son and a daughter. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, I think that these are conversation and I and I don't get it twisted in my head thinking because my son could not pass for black, you know, um, and as such, he's going to have a different type of interaction in the world. And so it is my responsibility and my husband's responsibility to have those conversations. And we've been having those conversations very early on, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes if because he might not appear phenotypically black or obviously black, then, you know, he might also have a front row seat to racism because there are a lot of wonderful, you know, great um, kids here in the liberal Bay Area who've said all kinds of heinous things think about black kids, you know, about other black kids thinking that Dexter wasn't black, you know, so mm -hmm. I think that these are conversations that we have to have some collective responsibility and someone said this, maybe Nicole said this earlier, it's like we always think stuff is happening somewhere else, you know, and it's like it's happening at the house. Yeah, it's not happening to it's not it's I mean, I know we I know Trump is the obvious enemy, but it's like, you know, it's not like Trump somehow created institutionalized racism in America. Right. He's not, you know, he has merely audaciously and perversely excavated the thing that has always been there. You yeah. know, so I think that I get more scared and weary, not I mean, it's good to it's very clear when you can sort of see people pontificating all kinds of racist and horrible sort of things and you know to cancel them right or to stay away from them but mm. to me it's gotten to a point where it's so insidious that it really is it appears uh, through the cloak and the veneer and um of people who are i swear to god more woke and have more pronounced vocabulary than i do you know about mm. racial um about racial terms and um about diversity work and I think that, that that and so I get very wary when f when we all engage, myself included, like as though the work is out there. The work is with us, you know. It right. really and if we 
begin to spend a little bit more time, um, each one of us, myself included, to have um, some grace and some you know, persistence in terms of what we have been indoctrinated because none of us are exempt. I don't care how strong mentally, spiritually you are. It is that big and that deep and that insidious of a disease. That's the country right. was founded on the backs of genocide and enslavement. It is structurally, racism is structurally embedded into the fabric of the American story, you mm. know? And so how do you as an individual resist that, you know? Um, I mean, I know I can't, it will take a lifetime for me to continuously try to work on it bit by bit. So as parents, I think we have a collective responsibility and um, we want to pr protect our kids, but we also have to acknowledge that not everyone has the same opportunity to be able to keep their kids as safe as we all want to. I don't know a single mom on the face of the planet who doesn't want a bright future and safe and happy future and successful future for their child. Uh, speaking of sisterhood, Emily Wessel and Dr. Scott, I'm coming to you last but not least, our two sisters who really wow. this whole thing started with. So uh, Emily Wessel, your final thoughts on what you've been experiencing. If there's anything I've taken away from um, learning about my own privilege, it's that um, how much my privilege exists in every area of my life and how it is literally the definition of privilege to be able to act as if things aren't happening because they don't affect me. Um, and to just remember that on a daily basis, but to see the privilege in every area of my life, not just in matters of the police or the courts or the things that directly affected um, me to kind of open me up to these things, but just, just to find it everywhere and to, and to really examine that, and continue to learn. Uh, Dr. Dina Scott, I'm gonna land with you, um, my co-hostess. Thank you so much for your hard work during this time. Final thoughts from you, Dr. Dina Scott. Well, I wanted to just start by um, just expressing my just deep gratitude to just be part of sharing the space, sharing the dialogue, sharing the conversation. I feel like as you know, an African-American um, female who is a, a mental health professional, um, you know, there are complex times right now to where I am going and navigating, supporting those who I work with, um, and then also my own journey um, in a, a country and a, a global, you know, world that is, you know, entrenched in white supremacy, which is very complicated. And so I, I also, as Emily, um, try to figure out spaces and places to hold on to that joy. And I also just thinking about, you know, what Dr. Kim was saying, spend a lot of time um, and energy and making sure that myself as an individual is looking and unpacking my own identity, but also that I'm supporting those around me, unpacking their own identity as well, because it's so important in the journey. And their journey cannot just hand, you know, it can't just be on the backs and, you know, the hands of people of color. You know, we need all folks to be a part of this. Um, and it is not just about, you know, Trump administration is not just about, you know, us in 2020. This is something that has been longstanding work and will continue to be longstanding lifetime work. And I'm just happy to be in the work with you all. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. That was Aaron Cohen, Dina Scott, Dr. Anastasia Kim, Deborah Rachel Kagan, Emily Wessel, Nicole Haining, Stephen Schmidt, and Ariana Murphy. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you.